began with the forging of the Great Rings. Okay, movie night with my best pal Dave. Popcorn is popped, lights are dimmed, blankies have been washed for prime snugability. That's right, Jonah. We do not fuck around with snugability on this show. Not in this house, Dave. Okay, okay, what to watch? What to watch? Okay, I, oh, here we go. Is that a DVD of Ben-Hur? Uh-huh. Ow! My hand! Get that out of here! I know my DVD collection is outdated, but it also, you know, DVDs themselves are outdated because Blu-ray is the latest tech. It's just that my collection is so extensive, and I feel that DVDs are the new vinyl, Dave. Oh, I would never judge you for DVD use, Jonah. But why watch Ben-Hur Star Wars with the Dark Knight when you can watch the greatest epic of all time, The Lord of the Rings? Whoa, Dave, are you saying Lord of the Rings is one epic to rule them all? Jonah, you beautiful nerd. (laughs) On the 20th anniversary of the series, that's exactly what I'm saying. This is Galaxy Brains, and today we're talking fighting works, fucking ends, and all things epic about Lord of the Rings with comedian and creator of the podcast Bubble, Jordan Morris. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the podcast where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. I'm Dave Schilling. And I'm Dave's own personal precious, Jonah Ray. And each week on the show, we start with the logical brain, advance to the critical brain, question everything with the interrogation brain, and of course, arrive at the blessed state of the galaxy brain. Today, we are ascending to a plane higher than Hugo Weaving's forehead with the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And we aren't journeying to the mental undying lands alone. Oh, no. Joining us today on our Merry Fellowship is creator of the sci-fi podcast and graphic novel Bubble, Jordan Morris. But before we get into maximum snugability with Jordan, we have to dive into Logic Brain. Boy, oh boy, if you haven't seen Lord of the Rings at this point, you have a full-on contempt for very nice person, Elijah Wood. Yeah, what's your problem, man? Elijah's a cool dude. Look, Lord of the Rings is not for everyone. Even if it was a massive cultural moment back in 2001, some of our listeners might be too young to remember how important these movies were for us. Peter Jackson's adaptation of J.R.R. Tolkien's fantasy trilogy came out just at the right time for people like us. We were just getting over 9-11 and trying to make sense of a world where concepts of good and evil seemed totally antiquated. But the Lord of the Rings trilogy imagined a scenario where we could control our own fate. Frodo and Samwise could take the WMD that was the Ring of Power to Mount Doom and just kind of throw it away like a Starbucks wrapper or a used condom. We lived vicariously through those little hobbits, which is why, during this auspicious anniversary, we need to work through our angst. That's right, Jonah. We're not going to be able to process these movies without spending a little time on a segment we call Critical Brain. Let's just ask the most important question of them all today. We asked this question last week. We're going to ask it again, I'm sure, later on. Do ints fuck? Jonah, what do you think? Well, it's hard to say because they fuck, of course, but every time an ent fucks or procreates, it is done through the natural course of how plants spread their seeds. So every time a plant has sex, it is a threesome with a bee or a squirrel. That's how it works. What 
trees have to talk about. Hmm? Except the consistency of squirrel droppings. Swapping DNA there. Bees, squirrels, birds knocking seeds off. Every tree, and therefore every ant, fucks. But it also has to be with the help of a furry. <laughs> with an Ewok. A little crossover, how about that? Yeah, there you go. A little sweet Ewok coming, yub nubbing. The only, I think, tree being that really has, like, fucked fucked of course it would be Groot because you know Groot fucks yeah teenage Groot is constantly horny like that poor bastard is just rubbing himself against all kinds of stuff it's so gross I'm Groot there's sap everywhere <laughs> I can just imagine like Star-Lord coming in and saying, God, there's like just sap all over my clothes. What is this? Groot. Disgusting. This is a joke, obviously. Like, trees don't fuck. But <laughs> Lord of the Rings is both a very chaste franchise and also one that has a constant undercurrent of sexuality to it. One could read these movies as a love story between Samwise Gamgee and Frodo. I mean, they don't consummate that love story, but it's certainly a very passionate, emotional connection that they have. I was having a dinner with Emily Yoshida, who's a constant guest on Blank Check and a very, very talented writer herself. And we were talking about Lord of the Rings and she's like, it's really kind of like an anime in how emotional everything is and how like serious everyone is. And the, in the end of the Return of the King, when you've got that scene where Frodo wakes up in the bed and all his friends are there and you get the close-ups of these wide eyes, like really intense, uncomfortable moments where people are like in slow motion running towards each other. And it does to me feel like an anime. Yeah, I, I'd say that. I mean, it's, it's almost as if anime and Lord of the Rings both come from the minds of people who were traumatized by war. Yeah. You know, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien went through World War One and came out with this weird take on the world and built his own world. And anime, of course, birthed from the aftermath of nuclear annihilation in Japan. Yeah, that's a really great point. I think, you know, when you go through a trauma of any kind, the world is more heightened. Like the, your emotions are more pointed and, and sharp. Certainly after my father died, I was like, oh yeah, everything matters more. And I think to your point, you know, that kind of trauma, that sort of intense moment of witnessing extreme mortality, lots of people dying, or you constantly being in fear of your own demise would make everything else feel really, 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 really important. Yeah. And so to talk about that ending scene that uh, one of the three or four endings of Return of the King. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, and I, when I was a, a jaded youngster, I was just kind of like, what is this? But I, you know, I rewatched the extended versions probably once a year. And the older I get, the more that scene really get, like just gets the waterworks going, especially after the past year where we've lost a lot of people. Uh, that is such a beautiful moment. Yeah. Slow it down, Peter Jackson. Let us see these friends that made it through the shit of this insane war. Let's see them like see each other and be so happy that they exist with each other still. Yeah, that little smile from Gandalf at the end really seals the deal for me and it being like a beautiful moment. Lord of the Rings at the end of the day is a story about friendship. The first movie is called The Fellowship of the Ring. The Fellowship. It's not an army. It's not a gang. It's a fellowship. And that immediately triggers a certain feeling of camaraderie in my head. Like these people are friends and they're going on a journey together and it's going to be scary, but they're going to be together and then they're broken and then they come back together 
in that scene at the end. And it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And I think anybody who has a close-knit group of friends will understand that. And I really think that Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan was his attempt at doing a Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah, men on a mission stories are often very macho and anti-hero-y, like The Dirty Dozen or The Magnificent Seven or The Suicide Squad. These movies are usually very macho and very gruff, and they're not about people really having intense emotional connections. And this trilogy is about close male friendships, very intense close male friendships, and those are often looked down upon. But here's the thing. It's like the reason people project all that stuff is because there's something kind of beautifully simplistic and uncomplicated about male friendship. Yeah. There's not a lot of moving parts in a male friendship. That's kind of what I think is beautiful about it, but that's also what can make it boring. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things about male friendships that is a stereotype that maybe isn't true or maybe has been true in the past and is less true now is that a lot of things go left unsaid. And I think that part of what Tolkien is going after here is these fantasy characters being able to actually express themselves and the care that they have for each other when he couldn't do that with his war buddies because that's untoward and that's, you know, not tough. That's not masculine behavior to talk about how much someone means to you. And very much a, a, like a British thing, too, of like chin up, mouth shut. Stiff upper lip. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's totally what that's about. And Lord of the Rings are about people saying what they feel. <laughs> and uh, for better or worse, you know, there's a lot of moments where people talk about their feelings. You know, when when Samwise is like caring for Frodo toward the end of Return of the King and he's talking about sharing the load. I could help a bit. I could carry it for a while. Carry it for a while. I could carry it. I could carry it. Share the load which is, of course, a beautiful meme that has now been proliferated across the internet because it, of course, does rightfully make you think about sex. I get it. I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't think about that. That's totally fine. But it's a beautiful movie, and I think it's a resonant movie because of that, because we needed at that time, and I think we still do, a sense of community, of fellowship and responsibility for each other and sacrifice for each other, which is totally just not around in our society right now. There's, there's nothing even close to Lord of the Rings in terms of that feeling of connection and community. Like, we're all Bilbo Baggins, essentially. And I kind of think Bilbo is sort of the villain of these movies. I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. He's the boomer. He's the self-actualized boomer that says it's his. It's it doesn't matter what else happens. I had my fun adventure. Yeah. Yeah, I don't need to like help you or like be there for you. I had my fun when I was a kid and you you don't know what you're talking about. I'm the smart one. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. He is a boomer 100%. <laughs> you think about like the scale of what happened in uh, the Hobbit trilogy with Bilbo's story. And then you think about the scale of like how much bigger and how much worse things were. Like Middle Earth is catching on fire. There's violence everywhere. The whole place is divided. And Bilbo decides to just say he had it just as bad and he's just going to fuck off to live with the elves. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what, hey, good luck. Bilbo's the guy rich enough to just go and move to New Zealand where everything's fine. <laughs> I think we, feel, I feel like we know some people like that. <laughs> We should talk about this cast because the cast of The Lord of the Rings is part of why it works. And it's a shame that there was no acting performances rewarded at the Oscars for this movie or this movie series. 
just Sean Astin, you know, really giving his all and truly committing to the reality of playing a little tiny hobbit best friend butler character. Like, good for him that he did that. And he was so good. He was very, very good. Yeah. Ian McKellen. So good. Ian McKellen just doing like Ian McKellen's great in everything he does. Yeah. If, if it's, uh, you know, Magneto, uh, if it's him, an apt pupil. And then this, you know, he's just. He brings so much sincerity to a ridiculous situation, and that is ultimately what makes these movies work, is the fact that they're all taking it seriously. I always got to give a shout out to Sean Bean. Sean Bean, yes, of course. Always has to die early and everything. One does not simply walk into Mordor. Yeah, he is wonderful in this movie as well and has a great death scene, as he always does. Good for him. <laughs> Goldeneye, Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones. Like, that guy's going down. He is fucked. It's sort of like the red shirt on Star Trek. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, he's the red shirt of actors. It's just wonderful. And I think there are a lot of actors who can do that, who can take this silly stuff seriously. Patrick Stewart is a good example of that, and that's why he's so successful as that guy in Star Trek and that guy in X-Men. Him and Ian McKellen both have that understanding of how to elevate this material. Well, it's that's a, a huge thing with that is that they're stage actors and so they've had to they've had to live in fantasy worlds more so than a, a lot of, you know, just people that get into television and movies for the most part. There's just something about a stage actor that spent, you know, years on the boards as they say that ha- had to be a, a king. King Lear or, you know, Hamlet or any of these fantasy characters from tons of different Shakespearean plays. They had to do a fully committed performance in all these kind of ridiculous situations, I'm sure. Another group of actors that I think really understands how to elevate this material is B-movie actors. Yes. Brad Dorif plays Grima Wormtongue in this movie. And Brad, of course, was also the voice of Chucky in the child's play movies and spent a lot of his career working with David Lynch or working in B B movies as a character actor. When an actor is good in a low budget horror movie, that means they're really good because they uh, they only got like one or two takes. Yep. And they're not embarrassed by their situation. Like there there could be a feeling of oh, I'm too good for this. I am a trained actor. I don't want to be in reanimator. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we can't talk about Lord of the Rings without the director himself, the man, Peter Jackson, and you know Fran Walsh and, and Philippa Boyens, who co-wrote this, these movies with him. But Peter Jackson got his start in B-movies. And I went back and watched Meet the Feebles <laughs> yes. after I watched Lord of the Rings. And I was like, this is a guy I want to hang out with. I want to party with this guy. I was a huge Peter Jackson fan. I remember uh, they did a rep screening at the Hawaiian International Film Festival when I was in high school of uh, Dead Alive. I remember seeing that and being like, who is this dude? And just being obsessed with him and then like finding out about Meet the Feebles and Bad Taste. So we were all stoked that he was going to be the one doing Lord of the Rings. I was ready for it, for sure. Yeah, he brought so much gusto to these movies and a grindhousey feel. Things were dirty. Things were gross, especially that orc sequence where they're birthed out of these gross sacks and they're just like dripping with goo. It's disgusting and it's a horror moment. And I think Lord of the Rings is this amazing dance where Peter Jackson says, I'm going to make this movie that the studio, that New Line, Bob Shea are going to like. 
But every once in a while, I'm going to like find a place for Brad Dorif to be, and I'm going to get Andy Serkis to play Gollum, and it's going to be weird and creepy. All those things that do feel like Peter Jackson moments are in there amidst this epic tapestry. And this is a movie that worked so well for so many people that it became a merchandising bonanza. That period of time, it was like Lord of the Rings was bigger than Star Wars for a while. Lord of the Rings comes out in 2001, just before people get disappointed by The Matrix, after we've been disappointed by Star Wars. And it's in this sweet spot where everyone is, as we mentioned before, so wrapped up in the grief and the trauma of 9-11 that this movie becomes a cathartic moment. The people thought it would be big, but no one thought it was going to be quite that big. So some of the merchandise initially was weird. I don't know if you were like me and you collected the Burger King light up Lord of the Rings goblets. Uh, no, I didn't. I was going to Burger King all the time and I was a vegetarian back then. I, I don't know what the, what the fuck I was doing. So I was already living in Los Angeles and broke. Buying stuff from a movie from a, a, a fancy place like Burger King was not really in my budget. <laughs> there was so much merchandise, Jonah. Sorry you didn't have the, the money to really embrace the bonanza, the, the merchandising bum rush that was the Lord of the Rings initial release. But I do want to play a little game for us. And what I would like to do is for you and I to list off some wonderful Lord of the Rings merchandise. And some of these will be true from what I've been told by our producer. Some of them will be not true. I know which ones are, are real Lord of the Rings merchandise. And you know which ones are your Lord of the Rings merchandise that's real. But we don't know each other's. So Kylie has set this up so that we are going in blind for half of this game. I'll lead us off here. Okay, first one. Here we go. It is a rubber ducky shaped like Gollum, a rubber ducky for the bathtub, shaped like Gollum. That feels like it's got to be real because it's it's a simple enough idea and it is for kids. Yes, it is real. And yet, why would you buy that for your child? I'm looking at this photo here. It's grotesque. There's like mung around his, his beak. The, the leavings of a fish that he's been sucking on. It's foul. And that is not a pun. Okay, it's it's really foul. Your turn, Jonah. Let's see what I can do with this one. All right. This is a product. Uh, there are house slippers that make your feet look like hobbit feet. That feels very real. I can see a lot of people who are fans just kind of walking around with furry feet. I, yeah, that feels real to me. That is real. You can get that at a Hot Topic or a Spencer's gift. Wait a minute. They still have Hot Topics out there? No, sure. You got to go to a mall sometimes. It's right up your alley, dude. <laughs> yeah, bro. Here's mine. Here we go. Here we go. It is called the One Ring. It is a cell phone that only rings one time when you get a call. You better pick it up. You better be as excited as Frodo and Sam getting to Mount Doom. They weren't too excited, Dave. They were ready to go. They had like a car battery up their butts. They were moving so fast. I'm going to say that's fake. Oh, the One Ring. <sighs> yeah, you're right. No one would make a cell phone that only rang once. That'd be stupid. <laughs> All right. Here's mine. It is a small batch whiskey called the Rye of Sauron. 
again, like this seems like something that Lord of the Rings super fans would love. They love drinking and, and socializing. That's what's different between uh, Lord of the Rings fans and Star Trek fans is Star Trek fans uh, don't mind being alone. Lord of the Rings fans have a fellowship, as I said, and they need to be partying. So I'm going to say real. No, I made that up. Rye of Sauron. I looked it up. I could not find anything called Rye of Sauron. A missed opportunity for all alcoholics out there who also love the Lord of the Rings. Oh, great. All right, your turn. Okay, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> A child's onesie that says, what about second breakfast? I'm going to say that's real because that does sound like a, like a dumb gift that someone would get uh, a friend who's into Lord of the Rings' as kid. A hundred percent legit. This is salacious, and I don't know if I approve of that as a father, but it's fine. It's real. I, I will never buy it, but it's out there for you if you want it. Yeah, okay. All right. Your turn, Jonah. My turn. Okay, here we go. This is a cock ring that looks like the one ring to rule them all, and it is called the Lords of the Ring Gandalf cock ring. Ah, yes. One ring to screw them all. Well, I'm going to say real. Again, I... Seems like some people would buy. It's an obvious uh, crossover opportunity here. Perverts and Lord of the Rings fans go together like peanut butter and chocolate. Yeah, <laughs> it is real. You can find those online. <laughs> one ring to screw them all. I, I mean, that's not even the real tagline. It's just one that I like personally. I do have one more, and it's a pitch from uh, Deanna Rooney, my wife. The Smog Fog Machine. Smog Fog Machine. <laughs> Does it come out of his little mouth? Yes, it's a it's it's a little uh, dragon-like smog, and then the the fog comes out of it. But it's a smog fog machine. That's pretty good. I mean, they should do that next time they do one of those Lord of the Rings music concerts at the Hollywood Bowl. Have Howard, Howard Shore come out with his fog machine. <laughs> By the way, we we can't talk about Lord of the Rings without talking about how great the score is. Howard Shore's music is one of the reasons why this is one of the great epic franchises of all time. And I want to really quickly just go through some of the other epic franchises and let's see really quickly how they stack up and do we agree if they are better or worse than Lord of the Rings. So we'll start with Star Wars. Jonah, better or worse than Lord of the Rings? Worse than Lord of the Rings. The trilogy is better than anything Star Wars ever did. I think that that's a, that's absolutely accurate. Okay, Matrix. Matrix has one good movie out of their trilogy, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, better than the Matrix trilogy. The Dark Knight trilogy. And I'm going to stop you there, Jonah. I'm not even going to let you answer here. Yes, the Lord of the Rings movies are good, but can you say they're better than the Dark Knight trilogy? Of course I can. The Dark Knight movies are great and whatever, but it's the real world with just, you know, a few superhero bells and whistles thrown in for good measure. Lord of the Rings had to create an entire fantasy universe that you believed in, that you accepted, that you, that didn't take you out of the drama of the films. Okay, but why were those movies able to do that? These were mostly practical effects on real sets. Lord of the Rings was the last old school blockbuster. And like we said, it was also a freaky horror movie where orcs are hatched and are covered with goos, uh, web dripping with goos. Exactly. There's a tactical nastiness to these movies that could only be crafted by a master of filmmaking like Peter Jackson, someone that came from practical effects horror. Jonah, this is, this is too intense. Please let me uh, share the yoke. <laughs> No problem, Dave. I'll jump on your back and you can carry me to the bar for happy hour. Oh, hell yeah. Shots, 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 shots,
When we come back, we'll be joined by the hilarious Jordan Morris, who will explain how he fell in love with The Lord of the Rings 20 years too late. Dave, it's hard to carry you. Have you been carbo-loading? Don't worry about me. Keep walking. I can see Mount Doom up ahead. I said I'd jump on your back, so now you're carrying me? (laughs) We switched. (laughs) <laughs> You've got to share the load, Shona you got to switch off every once in a while Alright uh, Okay <laughs> Welcome back to Galaxy Brains We've answered most of our non-int fucking questions but we still need to figure out if the Lord of the Rings movies are the greatest film saga of all time. That's why we've enlisted the expert knowledge of comedian and writer of the epic sci-fi podcast turned comic book bubble, Jordan Morris, to decide if this is as epic as it gets. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, it's great to be here. First question for you. I'm just going to lay it out. Do ints fuck? It's a great question, Dave, and I'm I'm really glad this is where we're starting. It's all uphill from here. <laughs> Actually, as as a Lord of the Rings expert, I can tell you definitively that Ents do fuck. It's in the Silmarillion, <laughs> which I have certainly read, and 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 they do go into Ent fucking in that in depth. Yeah, yeah, and I can tell you that Ents they're so nasty. This is how nasty those fucking tree fuckers are. Is they don't have to fuck to reproduce. They re- reproduce by budding. Like, they release spores, so when they're going to town with all their like, sticking branches into knot holes, they're just doing it because that's how nasty they are. They don't even, there's not a reproductive element to it. They just do it because it feels good. They just like to put on a show for the folks out there. <laughs> Forest dwellers, they're just like, oh, there they are. Look, 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 they're touching. Oh, 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 there's that sap coming out. Good God. <laughs> While there's birds nesting in them. Ooh, that's nasty. Just takes forever, though. It's like having sex with Sting. It just takes a while. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, if only I knew what that was like. (laughs) Anyway, you recently watched The Lord of the Rings and became a fan. Yes. This decade? This year? When was it? You finally said, okay, I'm going to watch the most seminal movie franchise of all time. I'll kind of walk you through it a little bit. I think as a kid and, you know, when you're a nerdy kid and when you're a, like, book kid or a library kid. Jonah wouldn't know anything about that. He was cool. Reading sucks. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Homework's lame. I only read zines and liner notes, man. (laughs) I was a nerdy kid. So, like, when you're a nerdy kid and someone doesn't know what to get you for, like, a gift they just shove The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings at you. So I, as a kid, just had five copies of each of these books that like an absent-minded relative who didn't really know me just got me. And I would sit down and try and read them, and I was so bored by them. And and it just seems so dorky. And I think there was also part of me that was kind of a self-hating dork a little bit. It's like, oh, come on. There's a Sauron and a Sauron. The hobbits live in Hobbiton. Come on. I'm a dork. I'm memorizing the Mortal Kombat fatalities, but I'm not this much of a dork, you know? <laughs> so I think there was part of me that like was kind of proud that I'm like, 
I'm into some dork shit, but not this. This is the only way for us to survive, Jordan. That's the only way for nerds to actually feel any sort of self-esteem is to be like, oh, yes, I love Star Trek, but anime? What do I look like? A baby? That's also the weird thing. Nerd culture, you're not allowed to be casually into anything because of that gatekeeper mentality where it's like, you know, if you say you, it's like, you're like, oh, yeah, I, I yeah, I really, uh, I enjoyed the Lord of the Rings movies. It's like, what did you read the, uh, you know, like, did you did you know about this? Or did like, uh, it's like, oh, you're not a real fan? I mean, that's like prevalent in all nerd culture in every little aspect. It's like, you're not allowed to just casually be into stuff. Yeah. And, and so I think there was like, that was at work when I was first introduced to Tolkien stuff. Yeah. I was like, uh, I don't have time for this. I'm busy becoming an encyclopedia of Simpsons quotes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I was always like, this is not my nerd shit. And then, you know, you guys remember COVID-19, right? No, I've, I haven't heard of that. What was that? It's what they used to call the Delta variant. <laughs> <laughs> it was the old name for the Delta variant. So when that happened and I was alone in my apartment looking for long things to watch, I was like, you know what? I'm going to give these Lords of the Rings another try. And I loved them. I just thought they were so beautiful and sincere and well-made and you know, definitely displayed like a craftsmanship that kind of modern blockbusters don't really. And I got so into it that I went back and watched The Fucking Hobbits, and I think The Hobbits ruled. There is something to that. This is what I like about Lord of the Rings. And like, and like even though I don't like The Hobbit movies, I still will watch them. It's because it's like, you're in that world. And it's also the way they just shoot on a lot of practical locations a lot of the time where it's like, right. it doesn't matter if it's the actual actors, but there's people dressed up as the characters on the like peak of a mountain and they have a helicopter shot going on. And you're like, where the fuck is that mountain? They actually had to get those people up there because that's not CGI. And that's why I'm so excited about, I kind of don't care if this is the Amazon thing is going to be good because I'm just like, I just want to go back there. I want to see that stuff again. I do too. And, and and this, I realize this is an ice cold take that I'm about to give. And I know the show is, is about hot takes primarily. So I'm sorry for delivering an ice cold one, but I think it, it, it's worth mentioning that like something that is so magical about these movies now is that they just do such a good job of blending CGI and practical stuff. And I think that's like the magic combo that, that movies aren't doing enough these days. It's like, that scene in the first one where you go into like the orc birthing pit and they're like pulling a guy in prosthetics out of a fake womb and he's covered in real slime. I'm like, this would be all CGI if they did this now. It's just this great melding of like a CGI environment, but a real actor. And I know it's a little bit weird to talk about the Gollum performance now because it kind of became a Borat or an Austin Powers where you got fucking sick of the impressions. Uh, speak for yourself, buddy. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Sorry, Dave. Deploy your fat bastard liberally today, please, if you'd like. <laughs> but yeah, it's like that Gollum performance was so magical because like, you know, there's a real acting genius in there doing some acting and then they supplement it with cool technology and it's like... Yeah, I don't know. It's just a kind of like combination of old school film techniques and practical and CGI. And it all kind of creates this soup to make a world that's like so much more real than kind of blockbuster that comes out now. And it's all just shot on a green screen in Atlanta. Yeah, I think partially it's the technology and what the audience expects now. But also, I think we're never going to go back to that because of 
COVID and because of how easy it is to shoot on a soundstage, how simple it is to just go to Atlanta or go to Prague or something and shoot on one of these giant sound stages and call it a day. Well, apparently the Eternals, though, they did a lot of location shooting. Yeah, you can see that in the trailer for that movie, that it is expansive and it does have that scope and that scale that, you know, quite frankly, you're not going to get from Black Widow. You're not going to get that from Shang-Chi, which uh, both of those movies are movies that I liked, but it doesn't feel like it's a real place. It feels like a heightened comic book reality. I want to actually ask you, Jordan, about how Lord of the Rings stacks up with some of the other big epic movies, not just the modern ones, but the classics, the ones that you kind of had to watch in film school if you went to film school or the ones that would be on three in the afternoon on a Sunday on, on broadcast local TV when you were a kid. We already talked about The Dark Knight. How do you think it compares with Lord of the Rings? Yeah, I, you know, I think that the Dark Knight movies will will never eclipse these in my heart because they're, they are chilly. They're chilly movies and they do have some fun emotional moments, but you know, that's the thing with Nolan movies, you know, it's like they're about spectacle or they're about like ideas, but there's not a lot of emotional stuff to grab onto. And you can point to a lot of cool emotional moments in those movies, but like, I I don't think it's a super hot take to say that they're chilly, you know, they, yeah, they are kind of like, a craftsman being a craftsman and the Lord of the Rings movies are so sweet and sincere and like the Sam Frodo relationship is so beautiful and they are just so warm and they are so humane that I think they, they give you the spectacle and they give you the like blockbuster razzle dazzle, but you know, the emotional stuff just fucking works in this. It works great in a way that I don't think it does in the Dark Knight movies. This is something we were talking about earlier, that the these movies work best when you're going through something. You know, when you're going through a problem. Whoa, maybe you're right. And your experience watching this during the quarantine and, you know, maybe feeling like you were isolated from your friends or your family and you were stuck at home and you couldn't, you couldn't reach out to another human being for for connection. Maybe that was why it worked on you this time is because there was a cathartic element to the watching of the movie. Yeah, totally. And, and you know, I think when the world like seems so divided, it it, it is so nice to, to see a story about coming together like this. Sharing the load, baby. Share that load. Sharing the load. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I think you're totally right, Dave. I think that's a great observation that like these movies are kind of a balm. They're a kind of a healing ointment for uh, for tough times. Okay, here's another epic film. It's not a trilogy, but it is an epic film that a lot of people equate with some of the finest technical craftsmanship of all time, and that's 2001 A Space Odyssey. How do you think it stacks up with any of the three Lord of the Rings movies? Oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, again, another, another you know, absolutely beautiful movie that I love to watch, but like, I think 2001 will have to take a backseat to Lord of the Rings culturally because it's just not on TBS as much. <laughs> <laughs> it used to be. I remember it was on all the time. Yeah, well, but it's dropped off. How often do you see 2000? And I think that like, the mark of an influential movie is how often is it on TBS at 3 p.m. on a Sunday? I think it's how many people get married to the theme of that movie. <laughs> oh, my God. You're totally right. I have totally been to a wedding that has Lord of the Rings playing when people are getting married. You're right. <laughs> and Jonah, fantastic observation. Well, I, I wonder, you know, what's going to happen to the way that we consume entertainment when linear television channels 
fully disappear. Because you still have that opportunity to turn on TBS or TNT or USA Network and watch like all the James Bond movies are on today or they're going to show all the Harry Potter movies. I've seen so many more movies the past year and a half because of TCM. Many movies that I would have never turned on, but like I was like, oh, it's just starting. I've heard of this. And then I watch it. And uh, yeah, the radio, essentially. I worry that if we don't have that option, a lot of movies will end up like 2001 A Space Odyssey and Lord of the Rings could be one of them as much as we love those movies. Yeah, it's so interesting because Lord of the Rings, I would say like they're great cable movies. Like it's a, that's totally a genre and it's kind of hard to say what makes a good cable movie or even kind of why it's important to still have that. It's It's a tough thing to explain to like people who are younger than us, like why you would want to still kind of cling on to that. I I wonder if these movies will just exist in a world for like serious film people and then like maybe they make you watch them in college, you know? Yeah. We're talking about an art form that's just about 100 years old. And what we're talking about, it's like we're saying like, this is history. This is like, you know, it's like, it's not that long in the grand scheme of things. I think about that a lot where it's it's just like what we're considering classics. It's like it's like it's so everything's still so new in the grand scheme of art. So maybe it was always supposed to be disposable. Maybe the idea that some of the stuff like, you know, the, the original film stock they use, the fact that it just degraded or magically set on fire because it was nitrates. <laughs> you know, it's like this isn't going to just go up in flames. There are so many. BBC shows that are lost of time because they just burn the tapes. Like, oh, we don't need this anymore. Or we can tape over the stuff or whatever because it's just, it's a it's ephemeral entertainment. Yeah, there was probably a long time ago, there was a troubadour going around Europe uh, singing songs. It's a, it's a, it was the best. The way this guy shredded the lute, you wouldn't believe. <laughs> <laughs> Jonah loves a lute. And then he died. He died and it goes away. And like, not that many people saw him, but everybody who did picked up a lute themselves. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I saw him at CBGB's. This is like the first Sex Pistols concert. Uh, yeah, I think curation is going to be really important. And people saying this is the stuff that needs to survive. And that's what happened to you know fine art, paintings and sculptures and things of that nature. Here's what we're going to keep. And here's what we're maybe not going to keep uh, as, as much. <laughs> we're going to keep these things because these are the best things. And Lord of the Rings, I, I hope, will survive. I think it has a, a better chance than most things. To, to stick with us as a culture. But that's that's only because it was resident and emotional and beautiful and was a world you wanted to revisit over and over again. And, and Jordan, you have a really unique experience as a creative person creating your own world in your podcast, in your comic book bubble. How do you go about creating a science fiction fantasy universe to where hopefully that will continue on for many, many years to come? So my podcast and graphic novel bubble, you know, the jumping off point was satire. It is a, you know, it's the story of like a near future where people live in these dome cities and the hipsters live separately from the suburban people and the suburban people live separately from the rural people. And we all just interact with people who look and think like us, but we're all just under the thumb of this mega corporation who makes us participate in kind of a life and death gig economy to survive. So the jumping off point of Bubble was this kind of like not super subtle satire. So I kind of like tried to make everything in Bubble related to our world somehow, like finding like what's the sci-fi version of 
the gig economy? What's the sci-fi version of the fact that we're becoming more isolated and only interacting with people who look and think like us? So yeah, the root of bubble is like, let's try and have some fun and say something about now. It's not like Star Trek where you have schematics for the Enterprise, you know? Like, I like that kind of sci-fi a lot, but I think Bubble is more about, like, the story of these characters, the story of these, like, people who kind of feel like they don't belong and feel like their society is trying to kill them, you know? I think the differentiation you're making between Lord of the Rings and Bubble, maybe they're closer than you think because Lord of the Rings when it was being written, was really about not just Tolkien's experience in World War One, but what he saw coming with World War II and the climactic nature of that conflict. And the One Ring being, you know, what a lot of people say is, is a analog for nuclear power and the dangers of anyone having that much power. So in a way, maybe not a satire, it still had a lot of resonant things to say about that moment in time. And I think that's what really separates great worlds from the kind of slapdash ones that are often created. Those are the things that really last, or the ones where you can apply that to now. And I know uh, Bubble was a podcast that you did a while ago, but it's still relevant because it's still about our divisions, right? And so I think anytime something feels like it can be extrapolated, uh, interpreted in the modern world, in, in, in a modern context, it's going to last no matter what. There is a kind of a Lord of the Rings parallel with Bubble in that they both start in the Shire, kind of, you know, like there and back again. I think the idea with Bubble is that it kind of starts in this little world that is kind of like Silver Lake, Brooklyn, Portland, where you can just go and talk about coffee and take improv classes and, <laughs> you know, uh, argue about whether or not music sounds better on vinyl. Sounds like heaven to me personally. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, they both kind of start in that place of idyllic peacefulness. But I think in the world of Bubble, the Shire is secretly trying to kill you. <laughs> that's a good That's a good way to describe it. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us again. This was awesome. I encourage everyone to go out and read Bubble, listen to Bubble, and make sure that Jordan can make his Murderbot AMC miniseries one of these days. Oh, and, and while we're still here, I'd actually like to shout out the rest of the creative team for the Bubble graphic novel. I, I should mention I co-wrote it with a great writer named Sarah Morgan, and the kind of art is done by Tony Cliff, who is a just a, a brilliant comics artist. And the colors are by Natalie Reese, uh, who does the Dungeon Critters series. She's also an amazing comics maker. Uh, so yeah, it was a, it was a group effort. They're, they're a great team, and uh, I'm really proud of the book. You can get it wherever you get your books. It's amazing that you actually gave other people credit for the hard work that goes into a thing you made, because I, I don't ever mention the people who produce this show. Whoa. It's just me alone. I'm just kidding. Producer Kylie Holloway does so much work. She busts her ass. I'm just joking. But thank you again, uh, Jordan. This was so awesome. I'm glad we got to catch up on a microphone and hopefully we'll get to catch up off of a microphone very soon. Thanks, Jordan. That was fun. As you know, yes, you, each week we wrap up the show with a galaxy brain take from one of our listeners. Here's Sarah from Brooklyn's. Hello, I am calling in with my galaxy brain take about John Wick, which is more about the effect that John Wick has on Hollywood. I think 
it is starting a renaissance of a revenge thrillers starring middle-aged men, which we love. Uh, now we have Pig with Nicolas Cage. That's basically his John Wick. I hope it also becomes a franchise and everyone in Portland is a vengeful chef that he has to physically fight. I think the possibilities are endless. I think we, we can restart some or reboot some other careers of like, say, a John Cusack or something. Uh, give him a dumb revenge thriller. We love it. The possibilities are endless. Also, John Wick and Pig should exist in the same universe and they should team up at some point. Thanks. Bye. Yes. Uh, thanks for that call, Sarah. Uh, that's the thing about pig is it's not really a revenge thriller that everyone thought it was going to be. It's not, it's not chef John wick. It is, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, as we say when describing these movies, a meditation on grief, any of the violence that happens in it is, uh, during a, a pig napping. And then from when he goes to an underground fight club and just gets beaten up. Other than that, he's just trying to find his pig, but did I want there to be more violence in it, like a John Wick with a pig? Yeah, sure. Of course it did. Of course it did. But the pig we got was the pig we deserve. <laughs> John Cusack was to do a, a vengeance flick. I think it would have to go the other way where every person he's shit on and been mean to on the set of one of, uh, many, one of his many movies goes and just kicks the shit out of a dude like that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's not a bad idea. If we're going to do a John Cusack, like, dusting off his reputation and try to to make him relevant in the year 2021. One, let's not do that because of the aforementioned assholery. But if we're going to do that, give me gross point blank too. Why not? That was essentially the template for what John Cusack could do in an action movie scenario while also being funny and being charming and doing all the things that he is good at that aren't normal human interaction. So here's my take on what I think a gross point Blake two could be. John Cusack's character died a horrible death. His dick was shot off or something like that. But who has taken the reins over of his assassination business? That's right. It is Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd. No, I think he dies. Doesn't he die? <laughs> he dies. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's Minnie Driver. So I want to see Minnie Driver have her come back and her be in an action vengeance movie. I think that's a great idea. I love Minnie Driver. Let's give more uh, middle-aged women uh, these parts. We don't need to see another guy doing one of these movies. Give me Julianne Moore doing that. Give me Julianne Moore kicking somebody's ass. Yes, you never cross Maude Lebowski. <laughs> I would love to see that. We can mix this formula up a little bit and get the mom who's mad instead of the dad who's mad all the time. What about the moms? The moms get mad. We should do a Galaxy Mom segment where we just talk about all the vengeful mothers in movie history. And maybe you want to call in about that. Maybe you have an idea for a great revenge thriller starring a female actress. If you want to call in, we'd love to hear your Galaxy Brain take on next week's episode topic. The greatest sitcom of all time, not named Peep Show. Seinfeld. Our number is 213-570-8069 and is also listed in our show notes. Give us a call and leave a voicemail with your take. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It helps me qualify for a small business loan so I can afford my dream of buying a house in Iowa. 
that's a wrap on this week's Galaxy Brains. Like we said, next week we are re-gifting and revisiting Seinfeld with the host of the Good One podcast, Jesse David Fox. I've heard that Jesse is truly sponge-worthy. I can't even begin to understand what that means because I didn't understand it then and I don't want to understand it now. Why don't you just read the credits? Galaxy Brains is produced by Kylie Holloway and me, Dave Schilling. The show is engineered by Dan Turek with music from Gautam Shrikashin. Our executive producer is Matt Patches and our developing producer is Zach Mack. Polygon's editor-in-chief is Chris Plant and Russ Frustick is the director of special projects. Special thanks to Andrew Melnizik who helped create the Until next time, and not before then, I'm Jonah. And I'm still Dave. Go ahead and fuck my int brothers and sisters. Come as you are. I am Groot. Oh, I am Groot. I'm Groot. That's uh, Groot coming too fast and then saying this never happens to me. <laughs> Put that in the show, please. I am Groot.